Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this text. We thank you for preserving it. A simple letter to a, to a new church written by one person. I, I thank you for, for preserving this letter for us for, uh, for 2,000 years now, Lord. It's, it's a miraculous thing. Um, the amount of manuscripts we have that, 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 um, that you have preserved so that we could know about these people who knew you, walked with you, and had these brushes with you. And uh, I ask that you would, you would teach us something from this letter. And um, <clears throat> I ask that you would um, give us first century eyes, let us gaze into the, sort of into the past, Lord, into the first century, into the city these people were living in, and let us understand the context in which these letters were written. And uh, let us somehow learn to apply it in this 21st century world. Um, our lives are not so much different from theirs, and help us to see that. We love you, Father. I ask that you would <clears throat> speak through me this morning. I ask that you would clear my mind. I ask that uh, uh, you would help me to remember all the things that I've studied and be able to communicate clearly. And teach us all to be more like you, to repent fully together. In your name, amen. <clears throat> all right, sorry. <clears throat> clear my throat. I don't want to have a raspy voice through this whole thing. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, we're actually going to start at the, last, at the last verse in chapter 12. We're going to start in the second half of it. That's why this says 1 Corinthians 12, 31b. All right, so let's read this together. I know. Awesome. All right, let's read this together. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. All right. <clears throat> a lot of people would consider this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, the pinnacle of this chapter. We have been studying this book for 25 weeks now. Um, it's a long journey. We still have a long ways to go through the end of this book and through uh, into 2 Corinthians. Um, and Paul starts off by saying, I will show you a still more excellent way. All right, so, so Paul has been talking about some really, really great stuff. Um, this church has some huge problems, some huge issues, some unity problems, some um, slander and backbiting problems, um, all kinds of just misuse of, of the graces of God. All right? um, he's been talking recently about spiritual gifts at, uh, at the second half of uh, chapter 12. Um, he talks about how we are the body of Christ, and he says, and our king has won a battle, and, and just like the Roman emperors, he brings back these spiritual gifts, and he passes out these spiritual gifts in the exact same way that Caesar Augustus, when he would conquer a town, would come back and bring gifts from that place and just pass them out to the people as gifts. He says, I, I conquered the spiritual realm, I won a battle there, and I'm bringing back spiritual gifts. And they're so, they're so, to make your lives better, to make your unity better and stronger, to make your churches um, more worshipful, um, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful picture of, of what God is doing. All right, and then he says this. So now it gets even better. He says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Um, he's saying that there is a gift that is above all of the other gifts. He says, and if you thought that was good, there's something that's even better, a gift that towers above all the other ones, a far more important gift, something that works sort of in tangent and, and, and is the underlying root of all the other gifts. And if we all know 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 13, if you're not familiar with it, if you start reading through it, you'll probably recognize it. you've read it all, all over the place. Um, if you've ever been to a wedding, it's probably been read there. Um, and, and we all know that the gift he's talking about is something called love. And we all, this is, this is, this is an idea that goes back to the beginning of mankind. Um, love, love, love. So every song is written about it. Every movie is, <clears throat> is written about it. Um, 
the gift apparently that is, that is a greater gift than all of these miraculous gifts that have been given to us is love. And it upholds all these other things. <clears throat> for, many, for many Christians, they recognize this passage as probably the most beautiful in the New Testament. Imagine being the author of a text like this, of a verse like this. You, you defined love for generations to come. So the end of time, when someone wants to know what is love, they would turn to your writings, all right? Paul was a brilliant person. You ever hear people talk about how Paul was uh, probably difficult to be around. Paul was um, uh, a chauvinist. Paul was a jerk. People write about these things about Paul and how they talk down about him. Um, someone who was these things that people are describing could never have written a passage like this. This man loved people, and he suffered and died for people so that they could know true love, all right? Um, so he writes a text here that encompasses the full meaning of love. And a lot of times we come to see this passage as some kind of detached poem. Um, we, ju- we just quote that. When we do that, we fail to realize that it, chapter 13 is what obviously holds together chapter 12 and chapter 14. It pulls them together. Chapter 12 is about unity in the body and spiritual gifts. Chapter 14 is also about spiritual gifts. Um, chapter, chapter 13 must be read in tangent with all of these other passages. It, we must understand where he's coming from and where he's going. Um, this passage has a lot of context, and he's actually, if you think about the people he's writing this to, you know, we, we, since we read this at weddings, we, um, <clears throat> two people are madly in love, and so, and so someone gets up at a wedding and they read this text. Um, that's, I'm not going to argue with that, but that's not necessarily the way this, mes- this letter was intended to be read. Paul was writing to a church who had all kinds of problems. They were getting drunk in communion. There was sexual immorality in the church. One guy was sleeping with his stepmother. It was disgusting. All these, all these crazy things are going on in this passage. This was a messed up church. And Paul writes them this letter. All right? And there's a reason he writes them this letter. And uh, so, so Paul starts off really with this big punch to the stomach here. He writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, um, all right, so you read that and you're like, well, that's a little out of left field. Um, I guess he's just using a metaphor. He's not necessarily using a metaphor. Um, this here is the Temple of Aphrodite in, uh, in, in, in the city of Corinth. Um, oh, I'm sorry, not Aphrodite, uh, Dionysus. Uh, Dionysus is the, uh, the, the Greek god of wine. So you can imagine what went on in this temple. The god of wine, everyone comes in, they get plastered. Um, and this is the way they would worship and thank the god of wine, um, for the great gift that we have of wine. Um, and when, when this, they, these celebrations would go on um, every other day, and they would, they would gather and they would, they would feast on wine provided by the emperor, and there was something else that they would do. There is, uh, these right here are ancient Roman symbols. These things would be crashed, hit with hammers, swung together. It would be a lot of noise. It would be very, 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 very noisy. And, and you would know that, that, oh my goodness, I'm missing the wine festival at the Temple of Dionysus. And people would come running. All right? It was sort of this big, huge call to come join in the debauchery that's going on in the city. Um, so when, when Paul says, um, when, when, when Paul says, you're, if you exercise the gifts, uh, though you speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and you don't have love, You've become a crashing symbol, a noisy gong. You've become pretty much what you despise. There's lots of things that, lots of ways that people in the world sort of celebrate their sort of nihilism, if you will, their, their sort of uh, worship of themselves. 
and when they when they do this, a lot of times Christians gather and, and, and they see what people are doing, the way they spend their Friday and Saturday evenings, the places that they go and the things that they engage in. They say, that is disgusting and I cannot believe anyone would ever take part in anything like that. And Paul says, well, I want you to know those times when you gather and you do your big worship ceremonies and there's people that you hate and there's people that you're not showing love to, there's people that you're completely rejecting, um, you're just like them. You're no different in the eyes of God, really. Um, hold on, I lost my slide check. All right, there we go. Um, and so this is, this is really, it starts off with this big punch right to the gut. I imagine as they're gathering in their own little worship centers, they could hear this stuff going on. So Paul writes them this letter and says, you think you're much better than them? You guys don't even love each other. All right? Um, it would be part of this everyday aesthetic of the city that they're in. All you who believe that speaking in tongues is what makes you holy. Well, if you don't have love for your brothers and sisters, first and foremost, then your displays of spirituality are really no different from theirs. You're standing and you're, you're raising your, your arms and you're singing out. Um, it's really no different. Um, there's a song by John Foreman that I love. It, it goes, I hate all your show. I hate all your... your the, he, talks about, he talks about the hypocrisy of of everything that we do. We put on our best clothing and it's taken from, he writes this, this song from one of the ancient prophets and it's a really be- brilliant sort of describe, description of what God feels um, and what the prophet was feeling watching all these people. And then he goes on to this passage here. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So it starts off with, the, he's, he's starting to name the, uh, the spiritual gifts that he talked about in, in, in chapter 12. Um, the gifts of prophecy, um, understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Obviously, it's talking about wisdom and knowledge, two separate gifts that have specific meanings. One of them is head knowledge. One of them is the ability to um, apply that knowledge in everyday life. All right? um, and if you have the gift of faith, if your gift of faith is so strong that you know that you can move mountains if you, if, if, if you desire that to happen. Um, I imagine there's something cultural going on right here. I don't really know what it is. I couldn't find anything. Um, but but it's, it's this... Just beautiful picture of somebody that's so strong, they have such faith, they're like, I can do anything, I can move a mountain. All right? Um, so he, he talks about this passage, and there's a lot going on, there's, there's a lot going on in this little passage here. And um, so we're going to sort of take this apart and take it a little slowly here. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about how prophecy closely corresponds to the gift of preaching. You're, you're declaring the message of God. So someone, anyone who is a, a preacher, a teacher of the Word of God, this would be a person who is, is prophesying, you're, you're taking the um, the, the message of God and you're, you're delivering it so that people can hear and learn it. Um, there might be other versions of this too, but generally the most prominent um, version of prophecy that we see is preaching, proclaiming the word of God. Um, and so perhaps you've heard somebody stand up, uh, maybe in a church gathering, maybe on a street corner in Ybor City, maybe on a television show late at nights, um, on the Christian network, whatever, you, and you've heard somebody stand up and, uh, and exercise the gifts of prophecy. And, and what it's supposed to be a, a message about a God of love who loves and pursues you and chases you no matter how many times you push him away, just like Israel, a God who loves you so passionately that he would, that he would give up his entire life and die for someone who he ultimately confirms this, yes, my bride is a harlot, but I love her and I will chase her forever. This message right here is the one that he's supposed to be proclaiming, but instead what you're hearing is not that. Instead, you're, you're hearing this message of somebody who is, who is angry, who is judgmental, 
um, who doesn't necessarily have um, the, the love that, that was supposed to be accompanying it. They spoke vengefully um, about how you're, how you're sort of dangling over, over the flames of hell and, and God is about to let you go. And, 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 and if you don't repent, he's, he's going to do that. And, and, and the tone in his voice is, is sort of something that you get the feeling that he, he would be just as happy either way, no matter what happened to you, whether you were tossed into hell or whether you were saved. But it seems like he'd be okay with that. And he seems angry. Um, and this is, and we've all experienced this. We've all seen this. This is sort of what Paul is, is talking about. Uh, if, if you have the gift of, to proclaim the message of God, but you don't love the people you're proclaiming it to, he says it's pointless, it's useless. It's no different than what's going on in, in the pagan world. It's no better. He says because it's basically saying it's not the message of God. Um, Paul was not that kind of preacher. John was not that kind of preacher. Jesus was not that kind of preacher. Um, the examples of what we see in the New Testament are people who were willing to die um, so that people might know the love of God, to give everything, including their lives, to spend their lives in misery and poverty and traveling and suffering and getting sick and, and spending time in prison, getting tortured and ultimately killed so that people could know the love of God. Anything else is not the message of God. So the same thing goes for all those who claim to be smart. So he, he goes into sort of, uh, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Those who have these gifts of, they know the gospel, they, they know, um, they can quote the ancient um, prophets, they can, uh, they, can, they can quote Polycarp, and, and, and they can, they, they, they've read, they're very well educated, they've read everything, and they like to show you their knowledge um, instead of their love. He says all of that was useless. All their studying was a waste of time. Um, those people who really know how to apply the Word of God, you know what the Bible says you should do here. It says you should do this. But in their own, in their own private little world behind closed doors, they live a completely different life where they don't really care necessarily about people. And they do painful, hurtful things. Uh, Paul says that, that all this goes directly. It, it's not the message of God. It's not you acting like a Christian. All right? and, and, and then he talks about uh, people who possess great faith but don't love others. Um, and the problem with that is you're eventually going to look down on those who are, who are fearful or who doubt. If you're a person who has great faith, um, that's something that, that's a gift of grace to you. It, it, you, didn't, you. You didn't stand up one day and say, I'm going to earn my faith and, and, and exercise your faith until you got to the point where you're like, I am just, uh, I have so much faith, I'm not afraid of anything. That was a gift to you from God. It's a spiritual gift. All right? The people around you who don't have as much faith as you, who doubt and struggle and have, have all these, these problems and you look down on them, here's the thing. God's given them gifts that you don't have. And you should be up alongside of them, talking to them, encouraging them in their faith and accepting from them what their gift is. All right? And you would do well to realize that, to seek out their gifts because you, you will never become necessarily what you need to be without the support of those around you in the church and their gifts. We all are one body. All right? And, and, and like Paul said, the eye is no more important than the ear or the mouth. All of us work together in tangent. We're all the same. So then we get to, we get to verse 3 here. If I give away all that I have, he's talking about, um, he's, he's, he's talking about philanthropy. If you, if, if you just start giving to the poor, if you start nonprofits, if you start doing all these great things for the poor and the downtrodden, but you don't have love, 
And he talks about how it's all completely pointless. Guys, charity without love, and and I, I want you to think about this and, and listen to what I'm saying today. Um, guys, charity without love is completely disgusting. It is. Um, there's really not a way to humiliate someone more than to look at them with disgust and to toss them some money and say, go clean yourself up. There's nothing more disgusting than that. But I doubt that there's anything really more prevalent in today's society. Um, you're saying, clean yourself up. You, you, you're saying, here, take some of my money. Maybe it'll, it'll rub off on you. Go get a job. And you just toss some money. And, and there's no love in your eyes. There's no love behind your actions and what you're doing. And you, all, all you're pretty much saying is, uh, you should be more like me. But the problem is the world does not need more people like you. The world does not need more people like me. The world needs more people like Jesus. And for us to act like this, to look down on other people, um, even if it's, it's based in terrible decisions, even if it's based in, in whatever, we don't look down on them. We, we look at them with, with love and compassion because they are God's children. The reason that charity without love is disgusting is because what it does is it, it lies about God. It lies about who God is when you don't exercise this, this love for the people who, who are, are completely impoverished and can't climb out of it on their own. It's a lie, it lies about God. It lies about the very gospel itself. If the gospel is really believed, if the gospel is really understood and, it's, it, and, and repentance really did take place in your life, one of the evidences of, of that, of that happening, is that you become graceful to others who cannot help themselves. And we've talked about this an awful lot. An awful lot. Because you were just like them and God gave to you out of love. And if you don't see the need of people in their poverty and recognize that spiritually that was you, you were the person on the side of the road holding the sign and saying, I am desperately hungry. That was you. And God pulled up and, and, and instead of looking at you with disgust and saying, why don't you clean yourself up and become a, a part of what I'm doing here? And then I'll accept you. Instead, he got out of the car and he stood there with you and he joined you. And he took your sin upon himself. And he took your death upon himself. All of your suffering upon himself. And so Paul says, look, I could sell everything I have and give it to the poor, but if I don't love them, it's all meaningless. It's all pointless. It's a lie about who God is. The truth is, you can't really truly repent until you truly believe that you were once in need of salvation. If you don't believe that you were ever in need of reconciliation with God, then it's really impossible to be reconciled with God. If you don't realize your need for salvation, then you're never really going to accept what is being offered to you. And a lot of times we've convinced ourselves that we have no need for the work of God. I mean, think about it. Someone who really thinks that they're really good, someone who really thinks that, that they have done some really important things for the kingdom of God, or just really good moral things for the world, and then Jesus shows up and says, I'm here to save you. And you say, oh, I'm good. I don't need to be saved. Look at all that I've done. Look at all I've accomplished. That's why Paul is saying that they're just like the pagan world. You may as, be, you may as well be over there um, celebrating with them in the drunken orgies of the temple of Dionysus because you have no need for a savior. So why would you gather with the Christians? A Christian community is a gathering of people that, that are honest and we confess and we admit, yes, we have a need for a savior. Yes, we have royally screwed up. That's what it was supposed to be, but the church has not necessarily become that in our country. It's become a place where we 
exercise spiritual gifts without love, and we look down on people who don't exercise these gifts, or we look down on people who don't live up to our standards of living, and we want them to clean themselves up before they can come in. And we've convinced ourselves that we have no need for the work of God. We're moral, we are fine, we're not poor, we're not enslaved. And we can't change ever until we repent, and we can't repent until we understand and truly accept that the love of Christ, that it was that that led to our salvation. And if you can't love others, there's no sense in working for their salvation. Because as Paul says, without love, everything you're doing is meaningless. So when we, when we speak about the gospel, typically, in all the writings you read in, in ancient Christianity, even, even, even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when we speak about the gospel, we speak about, uh, we speak about it in terms of poverty. Because these are, this is a metaphor for like our spiritual state. It's an external metaphor for our spiritual state. Um, we say, I was, I, was, I was naked, I was homeless, I was starving, I was lost, I was sick, I was dying, I was, I was lonely. These are all human terms for the worst things imaginable, things that we see in our world today. And, and, and a real Christian is the one who can say that this was me. This wasn't just us, this was literally me. I was lost, I was hopeless. There was no way I could climb out of where I was, and Jesus stepped up and did that thing. And then... Paul adds to that. He says, if I give away all I have and if I give a, deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, right near Corinth, um, like I said, was, was, um, right near Corinth was a city called Athens. You may have heard of it. Um, Athens is, is a city that was very, very famous back in, its, back in that day as well. Um, it had a, a monument called the Indian's Tomb. Now, this, we don't have this, this monument called the Indian's Tomb anymore. Um, it doesn't exist anymore. It was taken apart and used for the, for the building of something else. But there's lots of historians who have written about this. And this links directly with what we're talking about. I'll get there. I know you're like, what? Where are you going? Um, it, the Indian's tomb is a monument that was set up about 40 or 50 years before this letter was written. Um, and the monument, like I said, it didn't survive. A guy named Strabo, uh, an ancient um, historian, writes about this. And, and he writes about this whole incident where Caesar Augustus was meeting with some Indian royalty. Um, and... They had come to visit him, and they had brought this huge entourage of people, um, hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, and he says that they met at a place in, city, in, in, in the city of Athens where there was what's called a pyre. A pyre is a, um, it's sort of a, a fireplace, an open fireplace that was used during funerals. Um, there was the ritual where um, a part of a person would be burnt to sacrifice to a certain god, oftentimes. And uh, it doesn't mean they would like, cut off a hand and toss it in the fire. Oftentimes they would just trim some of the hair and sprinkle it over the fire. And it would be an offering to the gods saying, um, sort of guide my soul and thank you for your blessings while I was here on the earth, okay? Um, and so it was this tradition that was going on. And um, there was a very pious religious person named Callinus who after confronting Alexander the Great in the middle of the city wanted to claim how pious he was. And he threw himself up upon the pyre as it was lit and he burnt himself alive. That wasn't the last time this happened. Strabo writes that there was, there was, uh, when Caesar met this Indian leader, one of his men ran forward, and, uh, and Strabo writes this. He leaped upon the pyre with a laugh, his naked body anointed, wearing only a loincloth, um, and that the following words were inscribed on his tomb. So on the, on the monuments, um, as you went into the city, you would see this. It would say this. Here lies 
Zarmano Chegas, an Indian from Bargosa who immortalized himself in accordance with the ancestral customs of the Indians. Um, this was a big monument. No doubt these people would have known about this. There were so many people that wrote about this and how, how the, the, the awe that it struck in people that they would stop and they would contemplate this really pious person who, who happily jumped on the fire because um, they wanted to sacrifice themselves for the gods. Now, um, you could argue, uh, we could try and say that maybe Paul is writing about the martyrs who had been who were being burned alive and stuff. That didn't necessarily happen yet. It hadn't necessarily started yet when he wrote this. Most likely, this is what he's referring to. Um, the, the sacrifice of a person jumping on, you know, they could trim a little bit or you could throw your whole body on. But, um, but either way, if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. The people thought that there was this great gift that they would gain, and there's very few people that ever actually did this because it's a terrifying thing. Um, it's the same mindset that, uh, I believe it was during, um, when, right around the time of Tiananmen Square in China, you, you see a Tibetan monk and he climbs out of his car and covers himself with gasoline and lights himself on fire and it made the front page of, of a newspaper, I think actually Rage Against the Machine used it as an album cover. But, um, that's the same idea. It's this, it's this noble thing to stand up and, to stand up and do. And Paul says, look. You can do that and all, but like you're doing it in vain if you don't love people. So he does this. He even does this play on words here. The word that he uses for burnt is a, is a word that really sounds just like the word boast in the Greek. There's other words he could have used, but he uses one that sounds just like the word boast. So he's calling out the public displays of Christianity, the people on the streets protesting. He's calling out um, the street preachers. He's calling out um, the heads of these big nonprofits and the leaders in the big churches. And he's asking them, in what you are doing, do you love people? If you do, carry on. But he's sort of saying, I kind of doubt it. It is human nature to stand up and declare our piety up and above and beyond everyone else's. When we believe something's right, we get up and we demonstrate and we protest and we, we curse at people and we push them down and we say, you need to be more like me. He's saying, look, it's possible that your sacrifices are actually just boasting. You, you give all of your money publicly. You advertise the things that you do. Um, you, you proclaim, I do this so that others may benefit, but really the one benefiting is your pride and your resume. And it's better to love silently and give in ways that nobody would ever see so that your pride doesn't well up than to do this publicly because there's always that danger. Look, our main issue, our main issue in the church today is that throughout history, and throughout history is, is that we have been constantly trying to live a good life, to do good things. And as great as it sounds to tell Christians, go out and do really good things, um, that doesn't fix our problems. Good deeds don't fix us, all right? To be, it's like we think that if we're going to be rid of our sin in our life, all we need to do is change our daily activities. We can start giving to the church and we start giving to the poor and we can, we, can, we can toss a coin or two at the panhandler on the corner and we can start memorizing scripture and attending house churches and, and uh, doing all these things, playing in the band or serving in the hospitality team, whatever. Um, and, and as great as that is, none of these things... None of these things make you closer to God. None of them do. Your good deeds cannot bring you closer to God. Isn't that the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel is, you couldn't get near me with your good deeds. And so we 
we realize that and we have faith and we trust in him and his blood covers our sins and we sing out to him and we say, thank you for your mercy. You've looked on me and I couldn't get there on my own. And then what do we do? We start trying to get there on our own again. The problem is you can keep all the rules and still be in the grips of sin. And you know what? The truth is there's lots of sins that actually thrive when you're doing good deeds. There's some sins that'll sneak right in there and grow and grow and grow while you were doing all of these good deeds. And had you not been doing them, they actually probably wouldn't have been there. Pride, boasting, judgmental spirit, a lack of unity, all these things are, are, are what the Corinthian church was suffering with. By all accounts, the Corinthian church was incredibly successful. It was huge. It was, it was built in, in, in a cross-section of the world. And these people, they, they were wealthy, um, and they were great, and they knew it. They were intellectual. They, were, they, they knew philosophy. They knew literature. They... Um, so they planted this church, and they were so good at these good deeds that they started separating themselves and having pride and boasting in their unity. None of these things can be destroyed by doing better, doing good deeds. In fact, they're oftentimes made worse when we do better. Therefore, if you want to live a, free, a life free from the grips of sins, you have to learn a life not of good deeds, but a life of love. We have to look at people in the lens of the gospel. If you're not doing that, if you're not looking at people through the lens of love, you're just going out taking part in the same things that every nonprofit in the world is taking part in. And we can, we can make the world a better place. We can, we can get everybody to live moral lives. We can pass all the, the laws to get everybody to line up with exactly what we believe, but they still don't know Jesus, so we're still accomplishing absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. If you want to live a life free from the grips of sins, you have to learn to live a life of love. You want a life filled with God? God is not good deeds. God is not spiritual gifts. God is love. All the other good things are a byproduct of love. To me, this is why it's so fascinating when this passage is read at weddings. All right, think about this. If the two people knew exactly what Paul was saying when it was read at their wedding, they might be a little terrified. Husbands, you can, you can make your bed. You can bring home flowers every day. You can spend your whole life not cheating on your wife. You can provide for her everything she's ever wanted. But if you don't love her, your marriage is a waste of time. Wow. If we would actually think about the message that Paul had for us, I bet we would think twice about reading this at weddings. Or some people would really understand it and be like, read that at my wedding. Read that. I have to hear that. All right? In the same way that doing these little things for your spouse, void of love, in the same way that it doesn't benefit your, your marriage, in the same way doing good deeds does not benefit your relationship with Christ. Good deeds are a response to the relationship that Christ continues to have with you despite the fact that you treat his grace like garbage and then you boast about how great you are. And this is actually more than anything, this letter is a rebuke to a people who needed to hear it. If you really understand what Paul is saying here, this will give you pause because this is mind-blowing and I want you to hear this out. I want you to think about this because what he's actually telling them is this. You can have spiritual gifts. You can have miraculous deeds happening and you can have philanthropists filling the pews doing great things for the city and still not be a Christian. You can have all of these things and not be a Christian. There were miracles, miracles happening regularly in Corinth that had nothing to do with God. And, and that was what Galen did. 
in the temple of Oscalopius. The, the massive miracles happened. There was, there was people doing good deeds for the city. doesn't mean that they were Christians. Which is funny because I hear a lot of Christians oftentimes say, well, you can't be a Christian unless you have this gift or this gift. I would argue the opposite. You can actually be very proud of that gift and not be a Christian. All of these things were happening outside the church in the local temples. And Paul's pointing them out and saying, you are just like them if you don't have love. Oftentimes, we look at our own lives and we determine one of two things. We determine one of two things. The first one is this. You look at your life and you, you look at how much you've done and you say, um, and you come to the conclusion that, that your good deeds, I'm sorry, hold on. Good deeds do not mean that you're close to God. The good deeds that you have done, you can look at them and, and, and you can realize that you're not close to God while having done all these good deeds. Second thing is this. Oftentimes, the feeling of being far from God, this is for the person who looks at their life and they're like, I just, I don't feel close to God. Maybe this is you this morning and maybe you need some encouragement. That you, you just feel like you failed, you feel like you're miserable and, and, and you want nothing more than to love God with your whole heart, but you keep failing. The, oftentimes, the feeling of being far from God is a sign that you are close to Him. And here's what I mean. The message of the gospel is you are not good enough to earn his favor. And you're walking around saying, I, I just wish I was closer to God. The fact that you wish you were closer to God means you're actually doing probably a lot better than you think you're doing because the desire is still there. Because there's Christians all over the place that don't have this thought. They think, I am so close to God. I am doing great. And you're walking around wishing you, you, you say things to yourself like, uh, I, I wish there was more I could do for the poor. I wish there was more I could do for my church. Do you ever wish that you were closer to God? Does it prick your heart when you're failing him? Do you, do you feel heavy-hearted when you're not doing these good things? Honestly, it's actually evidence that you're closer than you think. You should be encouraged. You shouldn't be distraught. Sometimes it's the realization that you're not where you should be that reveals to you that you are exactly where you ought to be. I wish so bad I could bring myself to do more for people. I wish I had a heart for this people or that people. I wish I could do what this person is doing on the mission field. I wish I had this gift. I wish I served this place in the church. I wish so bad I had not spent that money on myself. I wish I had done something better with it, and I regret it. These are signs that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, and these are signs that you're listening to God, and you should be encouraged. I heard someone say, don't give yourself so much credit. And think about that. As if you think you are capable of keeping yourself close to God, God is chasing you. God is running after you, and God is holding you close to him. And if you ponder the gospel, you contemplate the gospel and everything that it means for you, that you were on the side of the corner begging for a chance because you couldn't get out of where you were, and God did that for you. when you realize that you are failing 
oftentimes everything is as it should be. And that is when you ponder the gospel. The realization that you are not good enough and that we can never do good enough is where the gospel is clearly seen as the only means of escape and salvation. If you are good enough, then you might as well be a pagan because you have no need for Jesus. You following what I'm saying? I hope we're grasping this. I know it's a little hard to grasp and, and, uh, and to get a good picture of it, but all these good works that you're doing and you're trying to get close to God, oftentimes all you're doing is opening up your heart for pride. And what you need to do is step back and ponder, does God love me right now as I am? Yes. Does God pursue me right here where I'm at? Yes. He did all of this despite the fact that I could do nothing for him? Yes. And the response that you have is, I should be looking at people the way God looks at me, with love and compassion in my eyes. And think about this. Oftentimes, this is what will solve all of these sins we have in our lives. You have a gossip problem? Try loving that person. Put yourself in their shoes. Look at them how God looks at them. Don't try to stop gossiping. Love them. Do you have, do you have an addiction to pornography? Why don't you try looking a woman in her eyes? listening to her story and loving her as her sister in Christ. All of these things could really be solved, not by stopping your activities or working harder to do good deeds, but by simply loving. It would stop racism. It would stop idolatry. It would stop a lot of things. Love is the answer. God is love, and the gospel is the story of love. If you aim for good deeds, you will not find love. You will find hate in the form of pride. If you aim for love, you will find both love and good deeds. Because only when you, when you find love will you understand the death of Christ. That's what we're going to focus on right now. We take communion every single week. Communion is a time when we focus on what Jesus did for us, something we could not do for ourselves out of love, out of passionate, desperate love for us so that he could have his children back again. Not so that he could impress us. And he took our, our sin upon himself. And so we take a piece of bread and we break it and, and the bread symbolizes the body of Christ. It's broken for all of us and we have a glass and it's, uh, it represents the, the, the wine represents the, the, the blood of Christ spilled for all of us. And so we come on up, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in the wine glass and we say, Lord, Jesus, I remember what you did for me. And my response is awe and wonder and thankfulness at what you have done for me. And take it inside of yourself and, and ponder the idea that you're taking the gospel down deeper into your heart. Repent of some things that you need to repent of, ways that you have buffed up your own pride through your own good deeds. Replace those deeds with love. Serve people and love them. And so our community servers are going to come up. We're going to have two here. We're going to have two back there. And we're going to take some time. And um, if there's something you need to confess to somebody in this room, if you need to go make something right, do that before you take communion. 
If you, um, if you just have something you need to get off of your chest, some, some sin you've been carrying around, you need to confess. Um, find a Christian who is a priest of God. Confess your sins and have them look at you in the eye and say, in the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. A community of confession keeps us all on the same level. It keeps us from boasting. It keeps us from becoming prideful. All right? Let's pray. Father, we love you. You're a wonderful, good God. And the things that you have done for us are amazing. Help us to recognize that when we're doing good deeds for people, we're doing them because Jesus did them for us. We were those poor people. Help us to not do good deeds out of pride. Help us to do good deeds out of response and love because we're trying to emulate the love that you gave to us and it fills us up so much that we're overflowing and it's pouring on to other people. We don't want to be a church that grows um, and has a great reputation but really hates people inside. We don't want to be a church filled with pride. We don't want to be um, a church filled with any of these things. Do work in our hearts. Convict us. Teach us to repent and understand fully your gospel. We love you, God. In your name, amen.